Uber has a secret healthcare play up their sleeve. The doctors think, oh, a person just shows up. Turns out it's way more complicated for people who don't drive or can't access public transportation for a variety of different reasons. Beyond just transporting patients, tell me about the deeper impact that Uber Health has. It takes a lot of the pressure off of the patient and off of the providers to have this person ready to go at exactly a specific time. Because we all know that in the clinical world, that doesn't always work out so well. If you solve the problem for the most difficult 20%, the rest comes easy, right? And it seems like what you're describing is that's exactly what Uber is doing. In developing a new company, you have to talk to the people who are going to be your users. You can't come up with a solution and then launch it into the world and assume that the world is waiting for you to come up with your solution. That is completely not how that works. Do you think healthcare should be price sensitive? So this is my personal opinion is that healthcare is a right. You mentioned that we need more doers in healthcare, but I actually would disagree. I think there's a lot of doers in healthcare. It's just getting them into leadership roles and leadership positions. And so the question is, how do we destigmatize more doers in the healthcare system getting into those leadership roles? When we think of Uber, we immediately think of quick, convenient rides or a food delivery service, which is at our door within minutes, or potentially even that time you left your phone in the backseat and you're trying to get hold of a driver. But did you know, alongside these major tech giants like Google and Microsoft, Uber has a secret healthcare play up their sleeve. In today's episode, I'm joined with Dr. Mike Cantor, who is a practicing geriatrician and licensed attorney. Alongside Mike's medical expertise and his extensive leadership roles, he served as Uber Health's first ever chief medical officer. But why does Uber need a chief medical officer? In today's episode, we talk a little bit about how Uber is completely reshaping healthcare. We discuss the buyer-seller dynamics in the medical realm. We talk about the role of transportation and how accessible rides can make a pivotal difference in patient outcomes, especially amongst those that are the most vulnerable. Additionally, we talk about Uber's long-term vision and the future of healthcare and how they're aiming to bridge gaps in accessibility and convenience. Lastly, we touch on Mike's personal journey from medical doctor to medical leader and he shares some fantastic insights into what he wish he knew a couple years back if he was to start his journey again. For those of you that are new to this channel my name is Esh and I'm a final year medical student on a mission to inspire healthcare beyond tomorrow. On this podcast we talk about all things entrepreneurship, innovation and just the future of healthcare. So if any of those things intrigue you then please make sure you hit the subscribe button if you're on YouTube or if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts hit the follow button. I begin this episode by asking Mike to break down the catalyst and the drive for why Uber has decided to venture into the healthcare industry. I hope you enjoy. So about five years ago, the history of Uber Health begins about five years ago. There's recognition that, and if you've ever worked in a hospital in the States, I'm sure it's the same in all over the world. Friday afternoon comes. We need those beds. The staffing for the weekend is never as good. So they want to send people home. And there are people who are ready to go home. The problem is they don't have a ride. So traditionally, people get a taxi voucher or some way of getting coverage. People couldn't afford that ride or didn't have someone to pick them up. And Uber Health is basically a business-to-business part of Uber, which is a large consumer company. I think it's about 19, 20 million rides a day is what we do here. So it's a lot. And so we have a great technology. We have an app that most people are familiar with. You can get on your phone. And what we recognize is if you put that app in the hands of the care coordinators, so people in the hospital working on discharge planning and said to them, look, instead of getting a taxi voucher, where you, by the way, have no idea where this person is going, if they actually got there, did they stop off at the bar, whatever, on the way home. By using Uber Health, you could actually order the ride, 
you could track the ride, you could pay for it so that the person themselves doesn't have to have an Uber app to be able to get an Uber ride. You can order it on their behalf. And just like with every other Uber ride, you can see in real time, where is that person? Where are they going? How do you know that they got home? You can actually see that the, the Uber picked them up at the hospital, dropped them off at their destination. And so you actually have some validation that the person was delivered to the place where they were supposed to go. So that recognition on the inpatient side, helping with discharges, was where Uber Health started. We're going to a much broader vision, a vision where anyone who needs to be moved from one place to another to get access to healthcare or get back from their appointments, where that's easily uh, available to them at an affordable price. We also are working very hard on the logistics of moving things related to healthcare, specifically prescriptions. So if you go to the drugstore to pick up your prescription and you're paying for a ride both ways, that's a two-way ride and you're doubling the money. And it's also more expensive because you're, as humans, you only go from point A to point B. If you're a courier, you can pick up a whole bunch of packages, drop several of them off in the same area. So what we're doing now is looking to make prescription delivery a one-way ride from the pharmacy to the person's home available. And we're working on the over-the-counter stuff that's in the front of the store. So if you need a bandage or you need Tylenol or something that's over the counter, if you need the things that you can get at a drugstore, in other words, without having to go there, you can just order it and we can deliver it on your behalf. So we're moving the people to healthcare and from healthcare encounters. We're moving things, medications. Soon we'll be working on food delivery too. So initially grocery delivery. Eventually we'll probably get to Uber Eats. So you'll be able to order prepared meals. It's a logical extension for Uber with the existing infrastructure that they already had in place, right, to then extend into healthcare. But I guess m most healthy people are able to drive, get public transport for their kind of non-emergency appointments. And so it's evidence that initially Uber's service will have the biggest impact and biggest positive impact on elderly populations, right? And this is something that I, I think isn't considered as a doctor, as a clinician. You, your patient comes to you, you have a 10, 15 minute consultation with them and then they leave. You don't consider how did they get to that appointment. I came across um, a review that was conducted by Age UK and there was a shocking stark story that I wanted to read out just for the listeners a patient story, just so we can have an idea of how at the moment elderly patients are having to get to their appointments. This lady's called Connie. This is in the Age UK review, which I'll be leaving in the link to the description, and she's diagnosed with breast cancer. And she talks about how she can't drive because the, the medication she's given gives her dizziness. She doesn't leave the house for leisure. She only goes to the hospital. She's taken to the hospital by the hospital services and one time they told her to be ready at 6 a.m. They didn't arrive until 7.30. She was so tired and stressed that she was stood outside the window waiting, worried that she'd missed the hospital service to come. And then after she finished the chemo, once she'd gotten to the hospital, she wanted just to get home, but was having to wait for around two hours to then be picked up and then taken home. And then when she got back home, she just slept because she was so tired and shattered. And, and this story was stark and it really highlighted that specifically with elderly populations, the way they're getting to the hospital at the moment, it, it, something needs to change, right? And so tell me beyond just transporting patients to from A to B, tell me about the deeper impact that Uber Health has in healthcare. Absolutely. That story that you told, very important story for a couple of reasons. One, she's getting chemotherapy for life-threatening illness. And even she is struggling just to show up. Like you said, most people are like, oh, no big deal, I just show up. The doctors think, oh, a person just shows up. 
Turns out it's way more complicated for people who don't drive or can't access public transportation for a variety of different reasons or whose lives are just chaotic. So maybe they have a car, but their cousin's using the car or the car's broken. The no-show rates, if you begin to look at the outpatient no-show rates, they can be as high as 30%, depending on the clinic, depending on the specialty. And, and in the UK, my understanding is that you don't call and make an appointment. Instead, you get a letter from the NHS that says your appointment's at 8 o'clock next Tuesday. Surprise, the no-show rates are enormous, partly because people can't shift their lives around at the last minute to make those appointments, partly because they don't have an easy way to get there. And there, there are different kinds of non-emergency medical transportation. And this is one of the fascinating things that I've learned since coming to Uber Health. There's a whole world of non-emergency medical transportation that I learned nothing about in medical school. I learned nothing about it in my residency training, in my fellowship, the geriatrics, you learn a little bit about transportation. I used, to a little bit, I used to do work with managing older drivers because it's an area where law and medicine intersects with, that doesn't involve my practice. So I've been interested in that for a long time. And this question of mobility is really what it goes back to. You have to step back and ask yourself, so how are people mobile within the community? So for people who have mobility problems within their home and a lot of older adults, but also younger adults with disabilities or with physical challenges, they have a hard time moving within their homes, getting out of their home, and especially in a city like Boston or in the UK, where you've got a lot of older housing stock with steps and it's narrow and it's not well lit and all the rest of it. And in the wintertime here, it can be pretty slippery. In the summertime, it can be beastly hot. It is a challenging place to move around, especially during certain times of the year. We really haven't done much as a society, as much as we need to do to the point of the HGK report that you cited. But it's also well known here that we haven't built the infrastructure that we need, designed the roadways, designed this, even the sidewalks to make it easy for people to get from point A to point B and enable mobility. For non-emergency medical transportation, there are different forms of it. One is called rideshare, which is what Uber Health does. So you, and within rideshare, you have a couple of, you have two different forms, basically. You have what's called curb to curb, so this, which is you walk to the curb, you get in the car, picks you up, drops you off at your destination, you get out on the curb and you walk to the building. That works well if you can get from the building to the yeah. car. That's why they also have what's called door to door, where people actually go to the door of the building, help you get from the door of the building to the car, get into the vehicle, arrive at your destination, get out of the vehicle, and then help you back to the building. Then there are people who actually need support, like people to go into the house, get you out of your house, onto the elevator or down the steps, get you to the curb, put you in the vehicle and then help you on the, on the other end, get into your doctor's appointment, let's say. Today, Uber Health offers rideshare with curb to curb. That's essentially what typical Uber is. We're now partnering with third parties that allow us to do the door to door so that you can actually get people who have struggles for getting from the building to the vehicle and vice versa. We can solve that problem in many markets. The other thing we can do is you can work with, there's certain partnerships that you can have with organizations that will provide the people to escort you and to get you from your house into down the stairs to the car, vehicle, from the vehicle back into the, to the appointment, et cetera. So it's a little bit more complicated. The financing mechanisms have traditionally, in non-emergency medical transportation, just to finish building it out, you've got the ride share, which until recently didn't exist. So it's basically taxi. So we've got taxi as one option as well. You've also got what they call wheelchair accessible vans. So for people who have who are, need to be in a wheelchair, you have to have special vans that we're all familiar with where you have to be able to load the, wheel, the wheelchair into the vehicle, get to where you need to go, et cetera. And then you have the people who need ambulances who uh, maybe just can't sit in a wheelchair even and need to be in a stretcher. And so you have stretcher transport. 
And so true comprehensive non-emergency medical transportation includes rideshare plus wheelchair accessible vans plus ambulance, non-emergency ambulance services. So today Uber is Uber Health United States is in many markets and it's all and it's basically rideshare curb to curb. We're now adding the door to door. Additionally, we're partnering with people who can provide the wheelchair accessible vans and also the ambulance services. What that means is that if you are sitting in a clinic and this person need, they came in and they were able to make it in with rideshare, but they now need someone to help them get to the car. You can order in one place, rideshare plus wheelchair accessible vans plus ambulances. You can help not just with one kind of rideshare, which is what you can get through the Uber app, but now through the Uber app soon in a, in a lot of places, you'll be able to do one-stop shop. So that's really different yeah. because normally if you need an, a wheelchair accessible van, you have to call, you have to sit on a sit on the phone, you have to wait for them to answer. And this issue with the flexibility, like when do I get picked up, when do I get dropped off, also a huge problem. So we've actually, with Uber Health, changed the way that we do that. We used to have, okay, scheduled pickup is A, you know, 10 o'clock and scheduled drop off is at 1030 and then the return trip, scheduled pickup is 1130 and then we return you back at noon. Now what we can do is what we call flexible rides. So we book you for that initial pickup and you don't need to have an app as a patient using the service. You can use landlines so we can actually do interactive voice response and call you and say, your driver Mike will be there to pick you up at you know on this corner in two minutes or whatever. Or we could text you if you have text messaging. So we could text you and say, hey, Ash will be there in four minutes, meet him here, look for this car, all the same things you get in the Uber app basically. And so we're, we, you don't have to have access to technology or credit card or Uber account to be able to use the rideshare services. When you take that ride and you go to the doctor, we book round trip rides, but the round trip, this, the return trip is flexible. So instead of you have to be here, be ready, you know how it goes with doctors. There's always some delay and then they want you to get a lab and the lab person's out or 12 people are in line. And so you get stuck and then the, the driver's calling you or they leave you. This is what happens too. She was lucky in the story you told that someone actually came and got her late. A lot of times you're like, you're out of luck. You have to wait another three hours for someone to come by who happens to be going in your direction. But with the flexible rides, you just text someone or call someone and say, okay, I'm ready to be picked up and then we'll come and get you. So it takes a lot of the pressure off of the patient and off of the providers to have this person ready to go at exactly a specific time. Because we all know that in the clinical world, that doesn't always work out so well. And there's a concept in business, which is if you solve the problem for the most difficult 20% and the rest comes easy, right? Yeah. And it seems like what you're describing is that's exactly what Uber is doing. You're focusing on the, the most challenging 20%. And so uh, talk to me about that concept in business, not specifically through uh, with Uber Health, but just throughout your whole medical journey and the different companies you work with, the importance of focusing on that small challenging target first and then implementing to the, the vast majority. It's interesting. A lot of companies I work with who are startups, they're actually doing the opposite. They're doing what's called the minimum viable product that are focusing on the complicated population potentially, but they're building for most of that population because within even that sick complicated population, there'll always be that 20%. That's the Pareto rule, 80, 20. If you can solve yeah. the problem for 80% of the people, you're good to start anyway, then of course, over time, you perfect, you learn. And I think a couple of things I've learned about this, one is the voice of the customer is so important. And so in developing a new company or a new product within that company, you have to talk to the people who are going to be your users. You can't come up with a solution and then launch it into the world and assume that the world is waiting for you to come up with your solution. 
that is completely not how that works. I've learned a lot. It's again, something that I was never taught in medical school or in any of my training about this concept of products. What is a product and how does it work? In medicine, if you wanted to open up a new clinic, you just open up a clinic. You hired a nurse and you hung out a shingle and you did your thing. That's not the way that really run businesses work. They define very specifically what is the product? What do they do with that product? What do they not do? Oftentimes it's just as important to exclude areas of focus and to really decide this is what you need to do to deliver. This is what the product needs to deliver and who it needs to deliver it for, literally or figuratively, as the case may be with Uber, and then to shape it to really meet the needs of that specific population. What's called product market fit, right? Figuring out whether the product as a business that you're offering is actually meeting the needs, not what you think the needs are, but the actual needs based on the experiences of those potential customers. That's really hard. That product market fit, finding that product market fit, keeping it, evolving, improving it, making it better over time. That's one of the hardest things that innovative companies have to learn how to do. And it's something where if you don't do that, you're not going to be successful. And the, the stories and the business literature are littered. And we all know these great companies, they evolved, the engineers came up with the greatest, best technology, but they didn't bother to ask people some important questions like, what is this? What is your problem with this? And how can we help you solve it? And what are you willing to pay for this? That's another product market fit idea, which is really important too, which is if no one's willing to pay for it, even if it's the greatest technology, the most fun, the best help, they can't afford it, or they don't think it's valuable enough, they're not going to buy it. And so when in healthcare, it's really hard because we think, oh, we're going to solve this problem for this kind of patient. The world will be the path to our door. Not so much. You have to be able to find that product market fit, including the right pricing. And then, and this is the really hard thing within healthcare, you have to execute. The strategy is great. The product design is great. The pricing is great. But if your team isn't able to operationalize the workflows to deliver that product consistently, reliably, in a way that meets the needs of its customers over and over again, every single day, millions of times a day, and some, hopefully, that's, good, that's not going to work. And that's interesting with Uber. That's what they've done. They figured out how do we provide rides all over the world, literally millions of times a day, sometimes millions of times an hour. They're cranking out rides in dozens of countries around the world. That's that as a basis for healthcare is unusual. Normally you're starting with a hospital or a health plan, maybe national, maybe regional, and you're working in a regional area. The opportunity to think about how do you have that product market fit and then how do you scale it? That's the hard thing is this is the product market fit is tough, but the scaling and operations, that's what separates out successful, important, valuable organizations that make a difference in people's lives from those that great idea, but never quite pulled it together. And my next question will be very interesting to hear your perspective on as a clinician in the US, because obviously as we know, the US is a privatized healthcare system, which kind of lives by these free market economics, where if you want a premium service, you obviously have to pay for it. Whereas the UK, UK's NHS kind of strives to have high quality, in quotations, high quality free healthcare for all. Do you think healthcare should be price sensitive? So this is my personal opinion is that healthcare is a right. It's not a commodity that should be bought and available only to people who can afford it. And that's just what I believe. Not everyone in the United States agrees with me. Interestingly, President Biden yesterday announcing 
that they're negotiating prices now with pharma for Medicare programs that can get the better price breaks. He said, healthcare is right. And that's not common. <laughs> not common to yeah. hear leaders in the United States, politicians saying, this is a right. Now it's common among the Democrats perhaps, but on the other side, the Republican side, not so much. I just believe that healthcare is a right. Now the problem we've got, which you in the NHS is overwhelmed with at the moment is the demand for those services is always going to be higher than the supply. And the challenge that the NHS is facing is how to overcome major, major resource constraints. Recently, I think one of your health ministers said, good news, it's only the longest wait we have to get hip replacements or some elective procedure. All our elective procedures can now be obtained within two years or less. That was seen as a, a move, of, that's a step forward, right? This is progress. <laughs> step forward, yeah. Right, so here in the US, two years from now, I could be dead, right? The sort of the literally or figuratively, that is not seen as the right thing for people who can afford it. To your point, now, if you can't afford it, you may never get it. At least you can get something if you're willing to wait for two years versus is it okay for those who can afford it, you can get it right away. And what's interesting here is we've actually expanded coverage. Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, as it's more technically known, did insure tens of millions of Americans who didn't have access to health insurance before. And the studies have shown that it's made a very positive difference, whether through that form of insurance or through expansion of Medicaid. I think what it comes down to is every human being deserves access to a basic level of health care. And there will always be the case that some people will get more and some people will get less. Some people need more, some people need less. But I think at the core of most societies in the world is a core belief that health care is a right and that we're going to provide at least a minimum of something for everyone. Here in the United States, that that isn't necessarily agreed to. My follow-on question to that is about Uber Health's expansion. And obviously at the moment, it's specifically localized to the US and I believe Australia, a couple of other countries, but it's obviously not in the UK and uh, across Europe. So my question is, how do you see Uber Health service fitting in to all these different healthcare structures, whether it is, for example, the UK's NHS? So what's really interesting about healthcare is that the problems are the same everywhere you go. So I was, when I was a geriatrics fellow, I actually spent a, world, a year traveling around the world looking at how other countries take care of older adults in the community. So I spent time in the UK, I spent time in Italy, Australia, Israel, Canada. And what I learned is that, and, and I'll use geriatrics, my own specialty, because that's what I was studying at the time, is that the challenges of caring for older adults are exactly the same. They're all the same. And recently, a couple of years ago, I was visiting a friend of mine who I had met when I was doing that work 25 years ago. He's a geriatrician. I, would, I went to clinic with him in Tel Aviv on a Friday morning, and I saw patients with him. And it's every patient is unique. The combination of problems are unique. However, all of those folks, older adults in a geriatrics clinic, they'll have problems with their medicines. They have problems taking their medicines, taking too much, taking too little. They were eating. Their families were like, well, they're eating too much or they're eating too little. There are cognitive problems, there's a lot of depression, chronic pain, those kinds of problems. Our problems of health as human beings are the same everywhere. It's exactly the same. If you have heart disease in the United States, it's the same as heart disease in the UK. What's really fascinating is how the social, political, cultural, historical, financial, all of those factors affect the delivery of care in the local context. So if you're a country like the UK that's focused on general practitioners and making them available in your neighborhood, the transportation needs theoretically are gonna be a little bit less because you're not gonna to have to go very far to get to your, 
GDP. However, if you're living in the rural countryside here in the United States, where there's literally not a doctor within 20 miles or 50 miles or 100 miles of where you live, that's a much different set of problems that requires different solutions. And so the beauty of Uber's technology is that it provides rideshare transportation consistently and reliably and affordably all over the world using the same core technology, regardless of the needs, regardless of whether it's in the mountains or the ocean or rural or urban. There are challenges with rural now. It's a supply of drivers. Uber Health recently is partnering with rural transportation providers so we can overcome that here in the U.S. So we are working to solve that problem. But the ability to get to your doctor, like we talked about earlier, is a universal access to care problem. No shows because of transportation issues is a universal problem. Getting home from the hospital when, you're, when you don't have a ride and your family isn't available to help you or you don't have a family, that's a universal problem. Those are exactly the problems that we can solve with transportation by Uber Health. And those are the things that we're working towards. Similarly, delivering medications, bringing the care to the patient, helping one of the things we do here in the U.S. is we actually provide transportation for home health agencies. As there's a big staffing shortage post-COVID and home health aides are particularly hard to hire and to retain and their transportation isn't always very reliable. So we work with home health agencies to literally, literally deliver care, deliver the caregivers to the patient's homes so that we can ensure that they have reliable transportation and that patient gets the care that they need on a daily basis. So it's really focusing on this idea of logistics. How do we move people to where they need to go to get care? Or how do we move the medications or food or whatever they need or the providers to the home or the community so the person can access the care they need in their own community or their own home? Those are exactly the problems that are the same everywhere in the world. And that's what we're working on and, and affordably to do it in an affordable way. That's exactly what we're working on with Uber Health. And so if we look at the long-term vision for Uber Health, the kind of end goal, number one is obviously this global expansion that we talked about. But number two is something you mentioned earlier, which is this one-stop shop for all healthcare needs. And so my, my question to you is, what does this ultim ultimate vision look like if we were to speculate 20 years into the future? So I think we're just beginning to understand what platforms mean yeah. in healthcare. The idea of a platform, Uber is actually a platform. It's a two-sided marketplace where you go and riders go and they say, I need a ride. And the drivers go and they say, hey, I've got rides to offer. The technology platform brings the rider and the driver together. And that person goes and gets what they need. And the driver gets the job. Once you have platforms where you can connect buyers and sellers of services, and you can build rules around that. For example, when we're working now with providing rides in many cases, they're covered by health plans in the US. And we now can get an eligibility fee that says my canter is covered. I have this many dollars to spend on rides this month, or I have this many rides that I'm allowed to use this year. You can actually track and organize and apply those rules. So the platform not only helps by bringing together the consumer with the seller, but also provides the context, the framework, the rules under which the payment occurs in this case, in terms of a health plan covering that ride. We're just beginning to understand what that means within healthcare because they're, they're what's called network effects. So once you have large numbers of buyers and sellers on the platform, all kinds of things start to happen because the people who go on the platform start to think, oh, what else can I get while I'm here? So Uber Eats, now I can not only take a ride, I can have someone deliver dinner for me and I only have to cook. So great, let's do that. Or Uber Eats for groceries so we can have food delivered and I can make my own dinner at home. Medication delivery, over-the-counter delivery, all the things we talked about earlier. 
So once you get on that platform, you can do all of this in one place and make it easier. And in this case, we're talking where care coordinators are actually providing a lot of the bringing together of the customer, in this case, the patient with the transportation. Those care coordinators are often really helped out by going able to go to one place and not have to go to three different places or call someone to get a wheelchair accessible van, let's say, or to get a door-to-door service instead of a curb-to-curb service. Those are the opportunities that platforms offer is to take advantage of these large networks of providers and large networks of buyers to be able to bring them together and more efficiently make that exchange happen. Because believe it or not today, if I'm a physician in my practice and I see you and I say, okay, you need a ride home, no problem. That is a problem. So I have no idea how to get it. I have no idea who's gonna pay for it. By having the simple Uber dashboard, which a lot looks a lot like the Uber app we all know how to use, it solves that problem. It's seamless. I can just tell the person at the front desk, hey, Ash needs a lift home. He's good. He has coverage under his health plan or check it out and see if he does have coverage. I don't know if he does or not. That can happen in a space of seconds instead of having to make a phone call, look at your insurance card and all this other stuff, which takes forever, much more efficient, much more effective, much more likely to be used. And to make it such a good experience that you're going to want to go back to that doctor and make it easier for you to get there next time because they'll be able to book a ride for you in advance. That's the opportunity to break down one of the major barriers, which is access to care and that platform opportunity of being able to go online and get something done very quickly and efficiently in terms of identifying, oh, where can I get a ride from? Who's available? Who's in the neighborhood? The Uber app does that for you for transportation. Someday I would expect that we'll see integration of the Uber platform into other platforms. So you might see, for example, a large health system that has its own platform with an EMR, electronic medical record, and access to all kinds of services that the health system is offering. Virtual visit, they'll say, oh, you have a wound. I I want someone to see that in person. I think we really need to take a look at it more closely. So I'm going to order this ride for you. It'll be there in 25 minutes and boom, done. That's where I think we'll see more of the platforms coming together. So it won't just be like, Uber's platform takes over healthcare, more likely it's going to be Uber platform alliance with the health system platform or with a health plan platform or all of those platforms. And Uber is the place that connects together the payer, the providers, the technology, so that the patient in a seamless way doesn't have to, oh, I have to call my health plan and get permission for this. Then I can go talk to this doctor. Then the doctor says I need this. Then I have to get a prescription somewhere else. But to put it all together so it's a seamless connection and it's much easier, faster, more efficient, more effective which then has an impact on healthcare because people get what they need when they need it. The, the possibility, and this happens all the time, that patients aren't getting chemotherapy, to go back to the example you gave a few minutes ago, because they didn't have a ride or they missed their ride. That's completely unacceptable. And to have a transportation alternative, to use that example, just makes so much sense. And it actually provides value. And, and we've done studies um, in the US with um, maternity care, prenatal visits, if you provide transportation, women, uh, pregnant people who need rides actually get to their doctors for prenatal visits more often compared to people who don't have access to transportation. It's face validity, right? It totally makes sense. But that's, that's the other thing that we're going to be doing is continuing to develop that database, the evidence, the literature that demonstrates the value of transportation, of combining transportation with clinical services, with prescription delivery, with food, really being able to have that one-stop shop. That's what we're going to be demonstrating and proving over the next few years. Healthcare is obviously known for having silos, which 
are completely disconnected with one another and it seems like what Uber's doing is trying to obviously be this interoperable force which connects all these dots. I'm excited to see what you guys do in the next couple of years and how it's going to ultimately impact and help healthcare for the better. And so Mike, as we close off the podcast, your your medical leadership journey is, is obviously inspiring. And though I, I would have loved to have spent the whole podcast just talking about that rather than Uber, I, I'd like to end with it. So you mentioned your son who's 21, myself 22. Let's say go back to yourself when you were similar to our age. What advice would you give yourself and ourselves going forward in our profession, wanting to blend this medical expertise that you have with innovation and leadership? My son is pre-med, so we have this conversation all the time. And we've had it for years. And I, I say to him, first of all, a lot of people say to me, oh, you, you tell your kids it's okay to go into medicine? Because a lot of doctors are burned out right now. It's really terrible what's happened to our profession in terms of the level of burnout and the disconnect between what we think we need to do for our patients and what we actually can do for our patients. It's a terrible situation that COVID clearly has made worse. Despite that, it's still an amazing calling to be able to be with people and to help them get better and to heal. And even if you can't cure them, but to be with them and to witness their suffering and to make their suffering better, that's the goal of medicine. And regardless of how it's paid for, or who's doing it, we need more good people who can actually do that work. Yes, use the best technology to cure people and prevent illness, but be with people as they're sick and even as they're dying to comfort them and to heal them. Healing isn't always curing, but to be able to do that is so critically important. That's why people, we still need the best people to be in medicine and in healthcare to be able to provide those kinds of services. And that's not unique to physicians, that's true for nurses and pharmacists and social workers and et cetera. So what I told my son, is he a generalist or is he a specialist? Does he want to be a, a pulmonologist that's focusing on a very specific form of emphysema, let's say, or does he want to be a, a primary care doctor? And he's 21. He hasn't been in the clinics. He hasn't experienced that. But I think he's more, he likes to do a lot of different things. And his skill set really is as a, someone who gets stuff done. Like he's a doer. And we need more doers in healthcare as well. And so I think getting good clinical training, going to the best possible medical school, we're going to be with people who are different than you are and under and have different experiences in the healthcare system, as well as a lot of people who are the same, perhaps. Training in clinical environments where you learn and stretch and understand that the world is very different, perhaps, than the way you grew up. This is a, a, an obvious thing in some ways, not obvious to others. There are disagreements about this, of course. But putting yourself in situations where you're going to learn and grow, that's the only way to really understand who you are what you enjoy, what you're good at, what you're not good at. And then the goal is to do more of the things that you're good at and do fewer of the things you're not as good at. Do more of the things you love and are passionate about. Do fewer of the things that nah, you can live, do without those. Every, every job is going to have its gut work, right? The work that we don't love to do. But if you can find that thing which you really care about, that you're passionate about, where you're making a difference in a way that you think is important and where you see the results of what you do, that's what you can do in a career in medicine as a clinician. It's what you can do as a career in medicine as an innovator. It's what you can do as a career in medicine as someone who makes our current systems better, whether it's through innovation or they're just better through better execution. So I feel like if you are someone who exposes yourself to different kinds of opportunities, clinical training and outside of clinical training, and you're lucky to have mentors, people who can support you and offer you advice based on the paths that they've stumbled down in many cases. 
that's the best way, I think, to understand what the opportunities are that you want to pursue and where you can actually make the most difference, not only for yourself and your family, but for your community and work globally. That's fantastic advice. And quick follow-up to that is you mentioned that we need more doers in healthcare, but I actually would disagree. I think there's a lot of doers in healthcare. It's just getting them into leadership roles and leadership positions. I, in my experience in clinical practice, though it's been short, it is it, a leadership position pretty much in, involves a full-time role and then you're piled all this work on top. And I know my dad would resonate. He's a ENT consultant in London and he held, holds multiple leadership roles. And I've seen throughout his career lifetime, that's basically what leadership in the NHS means. And so the question is, how do we destigmatize more doers in the healthcare system getting into those leadership roles? Yeah, so it's really, this is a, a topic for another podcast, actually, because I feel yeah. like there's a lot to say. And coincidentally, I'm actually working with some friends, potentially start a company to do that here in the U.S., to actually help clinicians, physicians to start, really figure out how do they make the, the greatest impact. One of the challenges I think we face as a profession is that we have not become professional managers. And so when we work with on teams with administrators, we don't often speak the language of finance or of product development or the analytics and data management. We know a lot about clinical care, but the organizations and the delivery of care, we're not really expert in. And that lack of clarity means that when we're in some situations, we're going to be outmanaged, right? We're just going to, yeah, sure, doctor, that sounds great, but this is our budget. This is what we're going to do, and this is the best way to do it. The right way to do it is to actually have an effective team where you've got great administrative team, you've got a great clinical team, and clinical leadership, to your point, that understands that there's this fundamental reality, as I mentioned earlier, there's a, an insatiable demand for healthcare services and a finite supply. So we're always going to have to make difficult choices about how we build the programs, who we build them for, how they're financed, all the rest of it. But if we lose that clinical voice, and it's only about widgets. People are not widgets. Patients aren't widgets. They don't fit into nice conveyor belts. The checklist approach to healthcare, while helpful to remind you to do certain things, is really problematic when you don't realize you've got the wrong checklist. And physicians, because we're trained to think outside of the checklist and to look for all kinds of things, makes it hard for us sometimes to focus on the right things. But it also means we save patients' lives because we recognize that something's different here and it doesn't fit the checklist and we need to go beyond. I think our profession is in a crisis where we're, we're not thinking that way as much anymore. We're just following along the rules and that's not enough for a lot of patients. They need us to be their advocates. And I think that's the other thing that clinical leadership means. It means advocating for the patient first and foremost and understanding that there's a balancing act. You can't always do everything for every patient but let's think about it together, clinically, financially, operationally. How does this actually work? And what are the priorities? Let's make them clear, because without clarity around the priorities, you can do anything and you'll be successful, right? The role of the clinical leader is to put the patient's priorities first, not just individual patients, but the population that you're serving, and to make sure that those needs, those clinical needs are always being met, that the patient experience is the most important factor that you consider. Because once you lose sight of that, it doesn't, it may as well be in a car wash, right? It doesn't matter. You're gonna run the cars through and they're gonna get their thing. And if someone's mirror is bent, whatever, not a big deal. It's different with people. And that's really what I think clinical leadership is all about.
remembering that these are not widgets, these are people. And we need to take their ideas, their voice, their needs has to be the priority for every healthcare organization, regardless of health plan, health system, provider, home care, hospital care, complicated, simple, chronic, acute. It doesn't matter. It's always about the patients. Amazing. Mike, it's been my pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much.